Hello, dear listeners. Welcome to Semaphore and Cut, a podcast for developers about building great products. I'm Olga, a product marketing manager at Semaphore. Today, I'm excited to introduce our new podcast episode, where Darko, the podcast host, welcomes Sarah Wells. Sarah used to work as tech director for engineering enablement at the Financial Times. In this episode, Sarah shares her journey from monolithic to microservices and tells us about the benefits and constraints associated with them. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Let's dive in. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. Great. Could you please just go ahead and introduce yourself, give us some stepping stones to your career? Of course. I'm Sarah. I've been working in software development since 1999. I started as a Java developer. I was a senior developer for a very long time, running teams mostly. Uh, and then about 11 years ago, I joined the Financial Times and I joined to work on a the first version of their content API. And that was uh, built alongside their existing website. And about three years after that, the FT decided to rebuild their website and to build a content uh, publishing platform. So APIs and a and a publishing workflow. And that was built using microservices. And because of that, we adopted a DevOps approach. We moved to use containers very early. I mean, so early that we built our own cluster orchestration because the alternative didn't really exist. And we moved to Kubernetes once that was production ready. And I was a principal engineer on that team. So I was leading the work on that. And the the DevOps side of it and like being able to build and operate microservices took up so much of my my sort of focus that I ended up moving to be a tech director for operations and reliability at the Financial Times. So taking responsibility for all of the operational and reliability uh, for all of our products. And I did that for three years. And then at the beginning of 21, we restructured a bit to make sure that every team that was building uh, tools for product development teams. So all of the engineering enablement teams were part of one group and I was tech director for that. And then at the end of last year, I left the Financial Times after after 11 years and uh, to take a bit of a break. And now I am writing a book about microservices and all the things that I've learned over the last five or six years. Can you maybe talk a little bit what was like initial trigger point that kicked, you know, Financial Times into building, into moving to microservices based approach? What are the main things that you're trying to solve? We couldn't release code during normal working hours. So the code releases would happen on a Saturday once a month. We would freeze the website so news stories couldn't be published, which was mostly okay for the Financial Times because a lot of it is business and political news, but it's always a problem. Something might happen, there might be breaking news. But when you only release uh, your changes once a month, there are a whole load of things that, that become really difficult. You can't really tell which of the changes that, that are in that have had an impact on something. So suddenly more people are reading for longer. You don't know which bit of code had that impact. And if something goes wrong, it's incredibly difficult to work out which of the commits that are in this release. And if it does go wrong, you try to talk to the developer who made the code change. They probably did it five or six weeks ago. That's not front of mind. It's really hard to go back into that and work out what you need to do. So we wanted to be able to properly do continuous delivery. So we wanted to be releasing all the time. And we wanted to do that so that we could experiment. Because I think if you're going to if you want to properly experiment, Linda Rising has a great talk where she says a lot of teams say they're experimenting, but they're not because they don't really have a hypothesis that could fail. They're just trying something. If you're really going to experiment, you ought to be saying, going to make this change and we're expecting it to have an impact on this metric. And then if it doesn't, or if it has the impact you didn't expect, you should be undoing it. And it just won't happen if it took you months to get that change out. 
just because it's such an investment. It's everyone's very sunk cost fallacy that you've invested all this time. You won't admit that it was a mistake to, to take that path. And microservices allowed us to do, to have an architecture that allowed zero downtime deployments. And I think zero downtime deployments are probably the fundamental thing that lets you release at will when all your developers are there and when they're really aware of what they just did. There are like two ways to move to a certain architecture. One is to start chopping off your existing application or bending it in the architecture in that direction or starting from scratch. And um, it was interesting for me to hear that you guys actually start from scratch. Can you maybe talk about a bit about that? And is it something that you might advise as approach or under which circumstances? I think... I don't remember ever having a discussion about replacing some part of our previous monolith. And I think probably it was a sense that architecturally it would be extremely difficult to get the benefit from extracting parts of it um, without extracting everything. The advantage, I guess, of our approach was we had most, a lot of people working on the microservice system had built the monolith or worked on it. So we did understand what the domain was. And when we were going around uh, taking our, our approach to microservices, I think we understood how to split that up because we'd already seen it. The good side of doing something like that is you can really focus on on your new architecture and you can build it. You aren't constrained by how it interacts with the existing monolith. The bad side of it is that it's really easy to have quite a long period of time where you're no longer really doing feature development on the old code base, but you're not really releasing new features for the, the new code base. And I don't think it's a good thing to have a team that's not producing business value. It's not good for the team and it's not good for the organization. And for the context, what was the size of the team? There were maybe 15 developers, maybe maybe 15 to 20, uh, I possibly thinking about it. So we had two or three teams, two, probably three teams most of the time. As things started rolling and you started producing a, a business value, some of the operational things that you have witnessed, can you talk about a bit of um, those war stories and that we can learn from? <laughs> if you're going to be releasing changes frequently, and we're probably doing 10 code releases a day within that, that set of 15, 20 people, you can't hand it over to another team to operate because you, that would just slow you down too much. I mean, there's quite a lot of other things you can't do when you're releasing that often. But, but the big thing is, effectively, you're never going to be able to keep another team up to date with what's there. So it meant that uh, you have to start thinking about, you build it, you run it. So we had to have a conversation with developers around what happens if something goes wrong with our application overnight. And up until that point, the developers hadn't been on call generally for their application. And that's quite a big change for people and people are very anxious about it. But the good side of it is if you can say, well, if you're expected to, if you're going to be expected to support this, we will fix problems. And you have a chance to, you do build things differently when you're the person that might have to, to get up and fix it. And in general, though, we didn't have a lot of out-of-hours problems, probably far fewer than we had when someone else was, was operating uh, the monolith. But we had to think very carefully about how we built things. So the way that I did alerting and monitoring when I was building a monolith, when we started building the microservices, we took the same approach. We would have things checking various metrics every couple of minutes and alerting on them. And we came in one morning 
and we were using Puppet to do deployment and something had gone wrong with Puppet Master and I had 20,000 emails in my inbox. So did every other developer on that, that team. And it's not workable because you're checking too much. You've got to think about how you do monitoring and know, understand the health of your system differently. So there were a lot of things that we had to learn about doing about doing with microservices. Testing was another area where we started building our microservices-based system with a similar sort of ideas we had had for a monolith. And then you find that your end-to-end acceptance tests are effectively a straitjacket that's turned your microservices system into a distributed monolith. We moved a, a lot from thinking about our acceptance tests tell us that, that things are okay to our monitoring tells us that things are okay. And that included doing uh, what we called synthetic monitoring. So we would, this was a content publishing platform. So one thing we did was we had a microservice that would publish an old article every minute and check that it made it through to the website by looking at the timestamp. If that broke, we knew that there was that something was wrong. And sometimes that would be because of code release, and sometimes it would be because something went wrong somewhere on the stack. They both look the same to anyone outside, and distributed systems are complicated. So that gave us more valuable... That was more valuable than acceptance tests because it's running all the time, and it's running in production, which is the thing you care about the most. You seem to be one of not many people in the world today that had that almost 10 year long experience of building and running, you know, microservices also within a single organization, which is my eyes a huge thing. Can you talk a bit how things change over time, a couple of years later, how things look? What are some of the things that we have to be careful about? I think everything's easy when you're building a new system. When people, there's a reason why job specs say, oh, it's greenfield development. It's fun. You're going to get to use new technology and you're going to build it from scratch. When you get three or four years in and effectively you finish the big rewrite, maybe you have fewer people working on the team now. Some people have moved to work on other projects. The people who are now supporting the system didn't necessarily, weren't necessarily the same people who wrote some of the, the components of it. So when microservices become a legacy, uh, thing. There are bits that will that will be painful, and and actually they were painful with the monolith too, but maybe painful in a different way. And we had to work out how you make sure that people still have ownership of parts of that of the system that they haven't necessarily touched. So with a monolith, you probably have that the team that operates the monolith are expected to understand the whole thing. With microservices, it's very easy to get to the point where everyone says, "Well, no, we don't." We don't know how that service works. It's owned by someone else. So one one thing we did was really focus on ownership and active ownership, really. Every service should be owned by a team, not a person, because sometimes people will say, well, no one's really working on that service, but it's okay because Dave used to work on it and he can look after it if something goes wrong. Well, that doesn't really work because Dave could leave the company and Dave, or maybe Dave's busy doing something else. So we wanted everything to be owned by a team and we built a sort of system registry. We called it BizOps. It was an information about all of our systems that was based on ownership. So you could say the service is owned by this team who are part of this group within the FT and you could aggregate information. So that was one of the that's one of the aspects. And one of the things about microservices is the idea that you can replace just parts of your system with something else when you find there's a better solution. So the interesting thing is can you do that? Or do you get to the point where everyone just says, I'd like to rebuild this? 
Because the, the ideal thing is that you don't. You carry on with your microservice system and you replace the data store when there's something better and maybe you start building things in a different language when you realize that's better fitting, but you still can keep everything else going. Microservices architecture is all the rage these days. But do you know what it really means and how to implement it to empower your teams to make the best decision for the problem at hand? On the Semaphore blog, you can learn about microservices and how to take advantage of features like test reports, monorepo, and Docker support to build, test, and deploy your microservice application at scale. Head over to semaphoreci.com blog for more information. And happy reading. And in terms of ownership, as you said, with groups and teams, did you then have like a clusters of microservices within your architecture that somehow ended up being, I don't know how to describe it, but as a constellation on their own and they're like multiple? Yeah, very definitely. I worked on the content publishing platform and there were a set of microservices within that. And there were fairly clear boundaries. There was a boundary where the APIs were that on the other side was the website and there were a set of microservices there. There's also a boundary with the editorial tooling team that build things like the content management system that the journalists use. And again, that's about a pretty obvious boundary where it would be at the point where someone says publish on an article that goes into the publishing pipeline. So yes, we ended up with clusters and that is an important thing you do it's that's where it becomes important to understand what naturally fits together and and that would that was just three but there were other areas as well so for example the all of the code that supported registration so the financial times has a paywall there's a group of services all together that we call the membership platform which is all related to being able to subscribe and access content we essentially last year, beginning of this year, packaged Sanford up in a release so you can, you know, put it on-prem and run it completely in your private data center, public cloud, wherever. And we need a lot of automation around it to be able to test the whole thing together. Now we're getting back maybe to that kind of a monolith, monolith uh, approach of testing things. And we need to expose some APIs and so on. And essentially what ended up being the case that there is some public API which is just, uh, let's say, a layer on top of our internal API. And that hasn't been updated in maybe two and a half years. And just maybe a handful of our public open source libraries that we are making need to be upgraded. And then there is like a lead time <laughs> to update that. And um, I also remember some of the talks about Netflix and they have like kind of a thousand plus microservices. They talked about, okay, we need to upgrade libraries. And that can be a trivial library for just, you know, getting something, but that work needs to be repeated. And um, in one of your talks, I heard you also talking about that. Can you talk about some of those things that we will end up if we move to microservices doing multiple times <laughs> that were previously very easy and now are very different? A lot of, some of it's just as simple as if you've got 150 microservices, it will take you 150 times as long to do anything that you have to do for each of those services. So you'd better have invested in automating things as, as much as possible. So you'd really want to have a template for your uh, build pipelines, for example, so that you can add something into all of them. There's the challenge of needing to upgrade a library. It's particularly true if that's a library that is used in lots of services and if there's a security issue. And one of your challenges that you might have with microservices, I think, is you may not even really be immediately able to tell where you're using all of a particular library. Because unless you've got really good 
a really good handle on here are all of our services and here's who owns them. It could be in a in a repository that no one's really paying attention to. You've got to go and find, you've got to go and search for it. So anything that you have to do for every microservice uh, takes takes a lot of time. But also if you are really benefiting from some of the, the promises of microservice, so the idea that you can use different data stores in different parts of your system so that you're using ones that are appropriate. So in the content publishing platform, we had a document store, we had a graph database. They're really good for what we needed to do for those two different things. We had something to support search. But assuming that every database that you have needs to be upgraded every year or every six months, now you're doing it three times as often because you're upgrading the document document store and then you're upgrading the graph database and then you're you know so i think that the more different things you have the more work there is just keeping them all up and running and you've got to be conscious of those trade-offs is it enough of a good thing to be using this other technology to make it worth having to do everything multiple multiple times and i, I do think it's um is one of the the bits of hard work around microservices is the amount of just ongoing updates and what we generally found is most teams within the FT had, most groups of teams had some people who were focused on doing that kind of work, automating it and making sure it happened for every service that was part of it. The reason to do it is if you're getting enough benefit elsewhere. So I don't mind having one of my five developers basically having to keep everything maintained if we're moving twice as fast as we used to do when we were building a monolith. There is also a huge, huge element of like, you know, keeping people, developers happy, you know, and then they're productive and all of that. And uh, that ability not to be stuck in a single technology that might be seen as a very old and old fashioned and so on these days. But there is also that element of anarchy potentially, where there are like just so many technologies and people leave and who is going to take that over. Did you have any constraints? Yes. I think you have to be really careful because there are things you care about as an organization that go against the idea that autonomous empowered teams can just use whatever they like. Now, I want there as a tech director, I kind of want there to be a contract. I want us to understand what our security, the security implications are. I don't want developers to just go and um, sign up to something with a credit card and start using it without us having a, some level of understanding. And then also just the more things you have, the more risk that you have, the more cost potentially that you have, depending on how costs work. But a lot of it is uh, the operational challenge. Um, how difficult is it to keep for anyone to step in and help when there's a problem if it's all it's all different things. So we had the idea of guardrails. So the guardrails will say this is what we expect from whatever you're doing. And there will be things that are provided by central teams that will comply with the guardrails. You won't have to do the work. And if you do choose to go off and do something else, uh, you'll have to make sure you do all of that work. So you're the ones that are going to be patching it within the patching policy time, which means you need to be on call, for example. Um, we also started looking at the the idea of the paved road or the golden path. Uh, Spotify, I've talked about this. Charity Majors has got a great uh, blog post on it. The idea is that you, what you do is you build you pave a road, you make it so fantastically easy to walk along this road and use all of these tools that most people, most of your teams are going to choose that. They're only going to go and hack through the jungle if they really can't do what they need to on your paved road. I tend to think that you need to be really careful about um, 
Uh, you need to have a process to say there's a really good reason to introduce some types of new technology. I'm not too worried about someone using a new a new data store, but programming languages, I'm concerned because it makes it really difficult to be flexible. How do you move a service to another team? Or how do you decide that you're going to focus more of your efforts on a particular area of your domain if the developers that are freed up are node developers and all of the services in that area are written in Go? And it's I think programming language is particularly hard because people get very invested in who they are as a developer. And one aspect of that can be programming language. You know, you're an expert in this programming language. You're really productive because you totally understand how it works and you like this particular language. And it's really difficult if suddenly, you know, you're you're really into Go and suddenly it's like, well, yes, but you need to do Node. And you don't feel like you know enough about this. So I think having a level, having some kind of desire to have only the necessary variation and a process that makes sure there's some discussion before something big gets decided on. Can you introduce us to your book? A lot of the book is about how you try and be successful over a long period of time on microservices. So I'm thinking a lot about organizational and cultural aspects and then the op- building and operating So there's two sort of sections to it, really. And for people who want to just learn more about your work and what you do, what are where what are some of the best resources to to follow you today? So I'm I'm on Twitter and LinkedIn. They're the, the easiest ways to get in touch with me. I probably could do more blogging, basically. <laughs> and uh, I don't really have a website yet, but I'm I'm working on that. Great. I will just add so there are a lot of um, great talks that people can find on YouTube. Also, uh, I was searching for uh, Sarah Wells. Sarah, thank you so much for sharing all this with us. Thanks and good luck with the book. Thank you. And thanks again for inviting me. I've really enjoyed this. That was an insightful conversation. We learned a lot about microservices, their pros and cons. Make sure to subscribe to Semaphore and Cut on your podcast player of choice so that you don't miss our new episodes. And stay tuned.